Welcome to What's the Law Say, a presentation of Legal Aid of West Virginia. I'm Clint Adams, Legal Director at Legal Aid of West Virginia, and in this episode, we will be discussing inpatient mental health treatment facilities. Legal Aid of West Virginia is a nonprofit law firm. We provide legal services and advocacy to vulnerable West Virginians. This podcast is presented to bring relevant and current information. All the information is current at the time this podcast is published. Our guest attorneys and advocates are licensed to practice law only in the state of West Virginia. This information relates only to the state of West Virginia and is uh, provided for informational purposes only. While our hosts and guests are attorneys and non-attorney advocates, this information is legal information and does not take the place of an attorney-client relationship. You should speak with an attorney about your specific situation, and please, please do not scream any confidential information at me. I probably will not hear it or be able to react. As noted, I'm Clint Adams. I'm the legal director. I'm your host, and today I will be joined by Rooney Reed. Rooney, welcome to the podcast. Good morning, Clint. Good to be here. It's nice to have you, and you work at Legal Aid, is that correct? I do. I said that as though I didn't know it, but I do know that. What, do know that. what, what do you do at Legal Aid? I'm a behavioral health advocate at William R. Sharp Jr. Hospital. Uh, that would be in Weston, which is in Lewis County. That's an inpatient mental health treatment facility, is that right? It's an involuntary mental health facility, so None of the patients who are here want to be here. Okay. And how many facilities like that are there in the state of West Virginia? There's just two. There's our hospital and there's Bateman Hospital. It's in Huntington, West Virginia. Uh, Bateman's a little smaller than this hospital and a lot older. This hospital has about 200 beds, whereas Bateman has less than 150. So we have people you said are, are involuntarily then receiving mental health treatment. How do they end up in these facilities? Primarily, they have to be a danger to themselves or others. And the way that looks is if someone's in the community, maybe they've had a suicide threat, uh, maybe they're hurting someone else, then a loved one or a caring friend or neighbor will probably call the police. The police will then initiate a mental hygiene hearing and the mental hygiene commissioner along with um, a professional will determine that that person needs help and then at that point they'll go into some kind of holding pattern that could be uh, being housed at home it could be being housed in a jail until a bed becomes available at that point they're going to be transported by legal authorities in handcuffs and shackles to the hospital and get admitted so they don't want to be there, but someone feels like they're a threat to others or to themselves. And as a result, they go through a court hearing and the mental hygiene commissioner says that they need to be there. Are When they come in, as you noted, are they always there as in that's where they're going to be for some period of time? Or are they there sometimes for an evaluation to determine whether or not they should remain there? That's a good question. And I should clarify, the process I talked about is what we refer to as probable cause. So there is another way someone gets here, and that's if they're in jail and they are a danger to themselves and to others and they can't work with their attorney, then they could can be committed to the hospital for competency restoration. And that means they will be at this hospital, they'll take classes, and they will learn how to work with the attorney and just a little bit about the legal system. So with that being said, the people who are here for competency restoration 
are generally here for about 30 days. Um, if they pass their evaluation, they'll go back to jail, work with their attorney and stand trial. Now, the people who are here by probable cause, um, you know, we try, this is an acute care hospital. So we try to get them medicated, some therapy, and then get them out and back into the community as soon as possible. There is another category of people who are here because um, they're not guilty by reason of mental illness. And those people are the ones who are likely to see a longer term residency here. Now, as they come in to the facility, what's that intake procedure look like? As you noted, in all of those situations, I presume they would show up with a law enforcement officer um, and be in handcuffs at the time that they arrive. How, how does the intake go from there? So that's correct. So, of course, they're introduced to a lot of information. Uh, some people aren't acceptable of that information because, of course, you know, they're not stable, which is one of the reasons they're here, so they can't hear it. Some people are high. They have a substance use issue and they can't process information. So they come in, the shackles, the handcuffs are removed, information is provided to them about what they can expect. They have to sign consent forms and then they have to change clothes. They will be searched. Um, their clothes are sent to the laundry, and that's the clothes they have on and any they may have brought with them. It goes to the laundry to be processed, and then they are giving, given um, sweatshirts and sweatpants under things, and then, then they are taken to a unit. And we have uh, two units that are primary intake units. So they're taken to a unit and then further processed regarding their medical condition, their mental condition, then they have psychiatric evaluations, et cetera. Now, are some of these um, patients as they come in unable to communicate or unable to communicate in meaningful ways? Yes, there, there's many different issues, but the people who are coming to the hospital don't want to be here. Um, they are often um, willing to fight in order not to be committed, and uh, they're generally not cooperative. So you as an advocate, how do you deal with those situations when you see a patient that, is, that has come in and, and maybe they've been combative and they've been um, unwilling to, to do anything that's being asked of them? What can you do as an advocate? The most important thing any, anybody can do in those situations is listen. So I'm going to sit with the patient. I'm going to explain the process to them. There's certain facts that they aren't going to want to hear. For instance, they're going to deny that they have a mental illness. And it's up to me that says qualified professionals has deemed that you do have a mental illness. So let's talk about this. I'll go through the whole process. I'll go through what they can expect and what they can expect. I go over their rights because they do have rights. And um, I'll try to introduce them to any staff that they're not aware of and what the roles of those staff members are. When you talk about those rights, what are some of the rights that you would review with them? They have the right to communication. They can write letters. They can use the telephone. They have the right to access their funds. They have the right to their personal possessions. They have the right to vote. They can get married. They can hold contracts and any sort of civil status. So primarily, they have all the rights that we do. However, the court will take away their right to possess a firearm. So when we talk about their right to communicate, you said they can use the phone. Does that mean that they're entitled to use the phone anytime they want to, that, that it, there's an open phone someplace or how, how does that practically work? 
there's approximately three patient phones on each unit. Unfortunately, they're not in a private area. Um, they're in a common area where people might come by, might listen to their conversations. Um, so yeah, they can use the phone. Generally, people are limited to 15 minutes per 30 minutes. If there's a waiting line, then we'll have to work in those variables. Now, you mentioned they have the right to write letters and things of that nature. What's that look like and can they receive letters? They absolutely can receive letters. When a patient receives mail, the mail is opened in front of a staff member in order to check that there's no contraband. And then the patient, the staff cannot read the letter. However, they have to check. And then the patient will enjoy that letter. They can write letters if they don't have their own stationery. And if they're indigent, the hospital must provide stationery envelopes and stamps. They also have the opportunity to purchase stamps from the canteen. Now, if I have a loved one that I want to send a letter to and they're in, in inpatient care at Sharp or Bateman, what are the restrictions? Can I just send them any kind of a letter? Um, no staples, no paper clips, nothing metal. Um, but no, we welcome people who send cards and who write patients because it makes their days. Coloring books are generally fine. Any kind of gift that comes in has to be pre-approved by the treatment team. There's all sorts of areas of contraband that patients can't have. For instance, they can't have outside food. They can't have shoes with strings. They can't have belts. They can't have tube socks. Uh, that's something people don't think of a lot. So there's a lot of contraband items that they're not allowed to have, and the treatment team will need to approve those. So how would I go about getting approval if I wanted to send to someone a, a small gift of, of some sort, maybe a book to read or something like that? You would call the social worker, and that can be arranged just through calling the front desk, the main number, and asking for the social worker for a particular patient, and they will be able to hook you up, uh, you know, and prearrange with the person, you know, kind of what they like. Is there, are there some common gifts that you can think of that are, that are appropriate? Coloring books. Crayons are appropriate, but they must be washable crayons. Often patients want to write on their walls, so when they're washable, we can take care of issues that arise with that. Books are great. Um, we prefer softback books as opposed to hardback books. Um, clothes are fine, although there is a limit to the clothes people can keep. They can only have five outfits at a time. They can't have things like DVDs, um, things they can read. Um, we talked about the ability to communicate. Does that include receiving visitors while um, someone's receiving inpatient care? Yes, that's encouraged. Um, again, visitors can be scheduled ahead of time. Visits generally last from 30 minutes to an hour. Uh, people under 18 have to have special permission to come in because we have to reserve a special room that's not on the unit. Um, so parents, family, friends, if a patient does not wish to see a visitor, they absolutely can refuse to do that. Just like you or I, they can refuse to see someone. But visits are encouraged. And is there a scheduled time for visits as to visitation hours or, or how does that work? They try to work people in, especially people from out of town when they can, but they don't want to interfere with group time. So generally there is a time in the evening that visitors are more welcome than other times. So 
generally most evenings it will be it's not like you can only go saturday from noon to two or something like that in fact you could coordinate with the facility and arrange a visit and some of that's dependent upon how many staff we have available because all visits while they're not while we don't have a staff member in the room with a visitor and a patient, the staff member has to monitor through a window. Now, you mentioned that um, if you're under 18, there has to be special provisions made. Are there other limitations on visitors or other classes of people that are prohibited from visiting? Of course, people with restraining orders won't be able to come. If a person has been here in the past and has brought contraband to the patient, there may be some issues with that. Um, there are no conjugal visits at the hospital. And when you talked about contraband, that could mean anything from some sort of an illegal substance to something that's just generally prohibited by the hospital rules. Do I understand that correctly? Correct. Food would be contraband. And again, ties, straps, things like that. So if you had a loved one in care and you intended to bring something, you'd probably be ahead to to notice the facility and ask them if it would be something that would be appropriate. Is, Absolutely. Would that be good advice? Absolutely. And when something is brought in, it has to go through a clearance with our safety committee and then with the treatment team. And it's going to take several days for that patient to generally get their hands on an item that's brought in. So if that patient has a birthday and it's coming up, send it or bring it before the birthday so they can have it by their birthday. Now let's talk about a day-to-day. -day. You talked earlier about some activities, some group activities that patients will be involved in. What's the average day like for a patient that's staying in, a, in, in an inpatient treatment facility like SHARP? A patient will get up in the morning. They'll have their vitals taken by a nurse. They'll get any medications. Um, Currently, breakfast is served on the units because of COVID protocols, and that's soon to change. So they'll get a healthy breakfast that has been designed specifically for each individual patient by a nutritionist. And then um, they'll have groups depending on what their needs are. Um, some of those groups are like healthy living, um, balance and conditioning, um, different emotional stability classes. They make one, may work one-on-one -on -one with the therapist. Um, there's also what we call a MICA instructor. MICA stands for mentally ill, chemically addicted. So they'll go to that class to get information on substance use. Uh, we also have a chaplain that they can meet with. We have church services that they can go to and participate in. Um, and, and there's exercise rooms, there's a multi-purpose room, they can play volleyball, basketball, pool, um, there's different gaming units, and then there's a separate weight room, which hasn't been open since COVID came, but we hope to open that soon. So there's lots of different alternatives that they can do, and our units are also big, so they have the opportunity to walk up and down lengthy hallways. So parts of their day would be structured by certain classes and things of that nature, and other parts people would be free to select some of the activities on their own. Is that right? Yes, yes. And, and it's determined on what that individual person needs. For instance, if they need um, something about substance use, it's going to be geared toward that. And before they leave here, they're going to have a relapse prevention plan. Now, one of the things when I toured Sharp Hospital that, that I was impressed by as well was some of the vocational trainings that were offered for, for patients. Talk a little bit about that. Sure. 
so that's a really wonderful incentive program. It helps in a lot of ways. So a person who is qualified to enter the vocational training program, it would mean that he or she has good behavior. So if they have that good behavior and the appropriate level, they can become involved. They're not going to work very much, five or six hours a week. They'll do different things, work in the dining room, the kitchen. They may mow lawns. They um, may wash windows. They're going to do things under supervision of staff members that need doing in the hospital. They get paid minimum wage, so that's a bonus that helps them prepare for when they get in the community and gives them a little bit of starting money. So you talked about that. That would likely be someone that's preparing to transition out of Sharp Hospital. How does that transition happen when someone transfers out of a, out of a hospital such as that? From the day a person comes to the hospital, the treatment team begins discharge planning. So they look at where can the patient go or where is he court ordered to go? What are the patient's needs? They give consideration to all of those things. Um, many times a patient will go back to their home, back to their mom or dad or to their spouse. Many times they're going to require additional help and resources. They may go to um, what's called rest care, which are established for people with intellectual disabilities. They may go to a home like that. They may go to a step down group where they get less restrictions, more freedom, and still staff supervision. So it looks different for each individual. What kind of input does the patient have as it relates to um, making these decisions? A hundred percent, unless they're court ordered. You know, the staff want to know what are his needs according to him. Um, if they have a mother or dad to go back to and they don't get along with that mother or dad, then they're going to tell us we don't want to go there and the staff will honor that. Uh, worst case scenario is a patient is stable, has nowhere to go, and then they go to a homeless shelter. That's the worst case scenario. Now, as you mentioned, some of these people may be there as a result of the criminal system. After that treatment, would there be criminal consequences then or how does that how does that play into it? That can go a couple different ways. If they become competent and they pass a competency evaluation, they will go back to jail to stand trial. The process then goes just like it would for anybody else. Maybe the charges are dismissed. Maybe they are charged with something and incarcerated the rest of their lives. If they are not guilty by reason of mental illness, then they are under court's jurisdiction for the maximum length of their crime. Let me explain that. So let's say arson gets 25 years. That's a maximum. If a person out in the community goes to jail for arson, they may get out of jail in five years for good behavior. However, if they were not guilty by reason of mental illness, they will remain under court's jurisdiction for 25 years. That doesn't mean they have to stay in the hospital here. It, they can go into the community, but they will have a community placement plan with certain conditions. Then the court continues to monitor that status. It, it would be the equivalent of, as you noted, someone may go to jail for five years and get released from probation in a couple of years if they're convicted of the crime of arson. Whereas in this situation, they're going to remain under the court's jurisdiction for up to 25 years. Yes, that's correct. As an advocate, we talked earlier about some of the rights that patients have. How do you advocate for those rights and what's your role in the facility? Number one, I listen. That's the number one thing. 
I do not work for Sharp Hospital, I work for Legal Aid. So that puts us as independent advocates so we can be a little more objective than someone who actually works for the hospital. We help the patients with grievances, to file grievances, to get their grievances resolved. We help the patients with understanding the processes. We educate both patient and staffs about their rights. Um, this hospital is governed under Title 64 Series 59, which outlays the rights of all the patients. I help them to understand that. Often, I'm just a gopher. The patient wants something and I go for that one something. Um, I also um, investigate allegations of abuse and neglect. So as you noted, the grievances may be anywhere from um, something that we might consider fairly minor, right? I recognize that when you're in inpatient care and you've lost a lot of controls, maybe the type of potato chip that you wanted to receive would would probably be a bigger deal in that situation than it might be to you or I. But in any event, th that runs all the way from that all the way up to allegations of severe abuse or neglect of a patient, correct? Exactly. Now, how does that investigation, when you get a grievance maybe that says um, a staff member cursed at me the other day, how does that unfold? An adult protective services form will be filed and called in. That report will list the allegation, when it happened, what time it happened, what were the details involved, and who were the witnesses. Witnesses also include other patients. When that's completed, the nurse manager will ask for statements from any of the witnesses. An incident report will be filed and any other necessary paperwork provided. For instance, there would be documentation for hall walks, documentation for people who are constantly supervising patients. So all that documentation will come to the advocates and we would begin an investigation by watching video. That's generally the first step. Meeting with the patient, making sure that patient is safe, making sure the patient understands what's happening, and then we'll investigate witnesses. We always record our inv in investigative interviews, and then we'll proceed with coming up with the facts. Um, we base our outcomes on Title 64 and the definitions in that. The definitions in 64 are very strict. For instance, I don't even know if you know this, Clint, but the definition of physical abuse has a lots of innuendos. So if a patient's male is restricted, would you think that's physical abuse? I could see where it would be. that They have a right to something and you've infringed on their right. Yes, yeah, so any violation of their rights is going to be physical abuse. Um, the definition of verbal abuse not only includes saying something ugly or cursing at a patient, but it also includes your tone of voice. So if I pay you a compliment and my tone of voice is negative, I can have verbal abuse substantiated against me. If I get a call from a loved one that I have, maybe my spouse is receiving treatment at Sharp, and I get a call from them and they tell me that someone has, has abused them on the, on the floor, um, and they don't feel comfortable maybe even coming forward and filling out a grievance. How could, how could you get involved in that and become to know about it? Hopefully that loved one would contact me. I would meet with the patient and I would, con I would fill out the APS form. How could that loved one get in touch with you in that situation? 304-269-1210, extension 306, or just ask for an advocate.
And if they had a problem, let's say their loved one was in Bateman, you would make sure that it got to the equivalent advocate in Bateman uh, that does the same work you do? Absolutely. There's two advocates at Bateman. There are three here at this hospital. I would just encourage anyone listening to go to the Legal Aid of West Virginia website. There's a lot of documents under um, under mental adult mental health. There's one especially that I'm fond of called What May I Expect as a Patient Involuntarily Committed to a West Virginia Psychiatric Hospital. Um, I think we take a lot of, assume a lot of things about mental illness and we shouldn't do that. We shouldn't stigmatize and we shouldn't judge. Um, bottom line is no one choose, chooses to have a mental illness. So be kind. Well done. Rooney, thank you so much for taking the time to visit with us. Um, and I uh, appreciate the work that you do. And um, again, if anybody has a loved one that's receiving care in inpatient facilities, um, feel free to reach out if you have concerns about the care that they're receiving. Thank you, Clint. Friends, if someone you love is having a mental health issue, this can be a difficult and trying time for everyone around them. It is during this time that they need your support. Take time to listen. Take time to care. Take time to be kind. Mental health is often stigmatized, but you have the ability to walk with them through this process and through this difficult time. Stay in contact. Communicate. Visit and support. Though it may seem thankless, the impact can be great. More information about the topics discussed today is available at LegalAidWV.org. Thank you for listening to What's the Law Say, a presentation of Legal Aid of West Virginia.